Thanks for listening to the new Numa Godcast today. As always, we ask for your support, and there are several ways you may do so. The first step is subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. We're on iTunes, Anchor, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and many more. Did you know that testimonies are one of the biggest ways to build credibility? Well, that's why we need the following to happen, which is one of the most important things we may ask from you. If you're on iTunes, once you subscribe to the podcast, immediately before life kicks in and you forget about it, rate the podcast in two easy steps, which are only available on iTunes. First, give us a five-star rating, which gives us more visibility in the podcast rankings. And after you rate the podcast, write an inspiring comment about the podcast that will tell others why they should listen to the podcast. Second step, follow us on your favorite social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Parler, and YouTube. Third step, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Fourth step, subscribe to our email list at newnuma.com forward slash subscribe. Last but not least, notice how none of the above steps cost any money. However, if you care to give to the mission, you may send as little as 99 cents per month up to as much as you would like to send into this ministry. Just go to anchor.fm forward slash new dash numa and scroll down to where you will find the support button. Click there and the rest will be clear. Once again, we appreciate you and your support. This is Norm from the New Numa Godcast. Peace. You are tuned in to the New Numa Godcast, hosted by Norman Brown, a.k.a. Professor and Justin Foster, where we address the taboo from a biblical view. Our podcast is all about real talk with new life. And quite frankly, you'll either love it or you won't because we deal with tough topics that the church rarely touches. Somebody's got to do it, and that's why we exist. So just sit back, chill, and enjoy the ride, because it's going to be good. Peace. Yo, so what's up, fam? How you been? I'm good, bro. How you doing? Man, I'm good, man. So, you know, this is kind of... um, an interesting uh, interview that we're about to do because normally when I do interviews, the first time I have somebody on the show, that is the interview where we basically get to know them. But this time it's like, you know, you and I already had some uh, discussions and one of them was recently uh, published on the podcast about apostles. So we're kind of doing it in reverse this time when it comes to you. But, you know, I just before we even get into, you know, this interview, I just want to kind of introduce you myself to everybody in the audience. So, no, you know, if you've already listened to uh, Terrence Frederick, which is the one who I'm inter- interviewing today, if you already listened to the uh, discussion that we had about apostles, then you kind of already know a little bit about him as it is. However, I'm going to do a little more like, you know, this is going to be more of a personal introduction of who he is because he's a friend of mine. We've been friends for years, and I want to make that clear and, and just say that up front. So Terrence and I go back to about, 
I'm going to say it was around 2010 or, yeah, I would say 2010. That's about right, right? That's about right. Yeah, so basically the way that um, the way that we met was through uh, a mutual party um, named Chung Lee. And yeah. Chung Lee was, uh, is, well, I'm going to say is, but was a Christian rapper at that time. He was doing Christian rap heavily. And um, he and I, he had come to my event called Word Life Cafe, and he administered there through music. But uh, he and I had also just been building on a personal level outside of that. And then at some point in time, he ended up coming down to South Carolina to your event that was called Kingdom Something. I don't know exactly yeah, what it was called. Kingdom Music Festival. Oh, it was called what? Kingdom Music Festival. Okay, Kingdom Music Festival. So with that being said, it was kind of like, you know, apparently Chung Lee saw something about you that reminded him of me in some kind of way, and then he felt like we needed to connect. And so he ended up, I don't know if he asked you for permission to give him, give me your, your number or something. Was that what it was? I think he did. I, I think he said, can I give it to him? I was like, sure, we can build. Yeah, so um, so he ended up giving me your information, and um, I got in touch with you, and I guess pretty much immediately I could see that you and I had a lot in common and that we would be able to build. And it was like, it's just, it's just blossomed, you know what I'm saying, over the years. And uh, I've come to realize that you are one of the few people that God has in my life that I'm able to go deep with. And I say that, I do not say that lightly, because when I talk about deep, there's some stuff I think about that, I've never heard anybody else talking about, and I'll just, you know, I'll just be sitting around thinking about stuff and won't have anybody to talk to about it because they don't think as deeply as I do. But when I met you, you became one of the few people that thinks deeply about things like me. And so that was one of the reasons why you and I basically st uh, started our relationship and kept building from there because Typically, I mean, I don't waste time with people that don't really talk about anything. You know what I'm saying? So, right. so anyway, um, that's just to introduce people to you from, you know, that perspective of me meeting you. So um, let's go back to, because, you know, with everybody, I always start from the beginning. So you are from South Carolina, and are you actually from Sumter, South Carolina, right? So I was born in Charleston, so I'm a tuck town baby, but most of my life I grew up in Sumter because my father was in the military and he went to Shaw Air Force Base. And so that's how we ended up in Sumter, South Carolina. So I went to school, middle school and high school there. Okay. So the interesting thing about you is you're the only person as far as, like, not in my family that I've interviewed that went to uh, school in Sumter. <laughs> and and <a> friend... <laughs> Now, I got to tell you, man, first of all, <laughs> first of all, this is a very little known fact about me that people 
you know, may find a little interesting, but I spent about eight years of my life in Sumter, and that was during my childhood. And, you know, back in those days, I was so mad about having to say I actually lived down south. Now, I was... <laughs> Ah, man, now I'm going to tell you, man, I'm going to be a little bit raw today. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was just, it was something about having to tell people I used to live in the South that I hated. And, um, man, it just kind of like, it was like the biggest, uh, what I'm going to call the biggest uh, eyesore or I'm trying to think of a good word for this that I can't, you know what I'm saying, like to describe how how I hated talking about something. And right. now, I don't, don't get me wrong. Now, I'm not going to say, like, my whole experience in something was horrible, but it was like it set us back, you know, years of time when we went down there because we were way ahead of down south where I'm from. I'm from Baltimore, and I had to move down there. And I'm like, heck, man, like they, they backwards down here. You know what exactly. I'm saying? So, so anyway, so, but it's kind of interesting that, um, that uh, you know, I live there as well. So, there's some things about that area that I'm going to be able to kind of vibe with you on a little bit. But um, the interesting about it, the interesting thing about it is you came in there when you were in your, your middle school years and I came at the end, the, towards the end of my elementary school years. So I, you know, we kind of had a little bit of a difference, but ironically you and I probably were in the city around the same time, at least for a year or so, maybe. So right. I graduated in 90. What year did you graduate? 95. Okay. So so five years different. So I would say, let's say when I was in the 11th grade, you would have been in like sixth grade. Right. So, so – I wouldn't have never known who you were at that time. I, it was just no way because you were in the middle school. I was in high school. So I wouldn't have – I don't think I would have come across your path at that time. What, right. But it's still ironic, you know what I'm saying, that we were in the same city at a certain point in time of, of life and didn't, you know, ever cross paths in so many words. But um, so tell me what it was like for you. I mean, you say you're from Charleston, so ironically, I've lived in Charleston too, because I was in the Navy, so I had to go there as well for um, my last school when I was in the Navy, um, what we call prototype training unit. So what was it like for you growing up? Like, what's your what was your family life like? And and let's start in Charleston first. Okay, so so my father's from, from Charleston. My mom was born in Tampa and then moved to Charleston at a young age. And so they grew up in the hood on both sides in Charleston. And um, they um, got together because they went to the same Baptist church, Charity Baptist Church. And she was 14, and he was 15 when she got pregnant with me. And um, And so I guess it was some commotion about whether – 
you know, she should have the baby and whatnot, and she decided to do that. He went in the military right after he graduated. And then um, so my the beginning of my family life was basically I grew up, well, I'm going to say grow, grew up. I, I started out in Charleston living with my grandmother and my mom and George Degree, which was the projects in that area. And then I went into the military life. We went over to Germany, and then we moved to Holland. And then we went from Holland, um, and that's basically when, after we went to Holland, uh, we ended up coming to Shaw. But I stayed in Charleston again with my grandmother because of that kind of transition. So it was a little transition time before school started again. And actually, I came in at the latter end of my elementary year, um, finishing up and then going into the middle school. But my family life was basically, they came up Baptist, and um, but they were seeking the Lord and trying to, you know, go deeper. So they met some people who were into the charismatic movement and even some Southern Baptists to kind of get them some structure in the word. Because anybody who knows about coming up Baptist, there's a lot of tradition, especially black Baptists. There's a lot of tradition, a lot of other stuff, but not a lot of sound doctrine um, that comes out. And so they were seeking different people to um, kind of give them, give them some foundations in the word. So they began to fellowship with some people. And so my backdrop is really, once we moved to Sumter, um, we ended up going to a Kojic church, um, introduced to Pentecostalism for the first time going to a Kojic church and um, it was just us. It was me, my two sisters, and um, my dad was very much into music and um, and that kind of thing. So I was introduced to a lot of gospel music coming up, hearing the word, going to church, you know, as a church boy, you know. So, so let me let me interrupt you real quick. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but when you were going to Kojic, did you know anything about Canty Memorial? Yeah, yeah. Um, they fellowship with Grace Cathedral, which was the church we were a part of, and um, and uh, Canty Memorial. We, we knew about them. Yeah, they fellowship with them and had the you know the the holy convocations and all that kind of stuff going on. Well, that's ironic because my family was kind of uh, we were intimately connected with them, you know, because my uncle. Had uh, he was married to, at one point in time he married uh, their one of their daughters, and um, and then you know I was I was going to school with one of the with one of the other daughters. She was in the same grade that I was in, and um, so yeah, we 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 were frequent there a lot. And my grandmother, you know, she was really great, close friends with the pastors there and everything. So. Yeah, so it was a pretty interesting history even with that. But um did you what what are some of the I'm trying not to be too nostalgic here, but like um I know that there was this one Baptist church, I think it was called like Greenville something like that. I think it was somewhere in Greenville, South Carolina. But um uh but there was a there was certain churches that we used to go to um, did you know about uh, Unity? No, nah, not coming up. Not coming up. Um, I, I can't recall. But you've heard that name before? 
Yeah. Later on, I think, um, you know, we may have done some things over there once I started doing some ministry work. But, yeah, I didn't know about Yeah, Unity actually was another church that we were really connected with. My grandmother, she was, like, one of the main reasons why we were so connected to so many churches. She was good friends with the pastors, the original founders and pastors of that church. And um, my uncle, who, like I said, married one of the Canties, he actually was really good friends with the son's daughters, stuff like that. And one of the daughters there, Sheila Lakin, she actually is one of the lead singers for John P. Key now. Um, yeah. And, oh, is that, was that Unity? Yeah, that was Unity. Oh, yeah, I know. I, uh, oh, I, I got to take that back then because we used to go to, they used to have a, um, they used to have a, like a, I don't know if it was a summer school or a vacation Bible school or something, but her, uh, I think, it, I don't know if that was her mom or her grandmother, but uh, Sheila Lakin, um, it was Pastor Lakin, uh, the, the the mother, uh, I forgot her first name. Uh, but yeah. yeah, we used to go there and, and fellowship with them as well because my mom was, was connected to, uh, maybe it was her mom. And so, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with all that with Sheila Lakin and the Lakin family. Yeah, so John Lakin... Um, yeah. there was John Lake and he was the father that was the pastor there, or I would say, okay, so I guess he wasn't a pastor there. He was just there, but his wife was the pastor. And, um, but he had a son named John that he named John, uh, Jr. And yeah. John Jr. is an organist or that he was, uh, pretty, you know, well known, I guess, in the community. Um, then there was David, who was also an organist. He was known in the community for that. And, of course, Sheila was a singer. And now John III is a singer, and I think he might even be a musician, all that. So, yeah, it's a history, rich history there with us. And we used to go to that church when I was a kid, and we used to sing there for them on Sundays. Um, it was me and three other people, my, my sister and two cousins. So it was two girls, two boys, and we used to sing songs like, you know, the Hawkins family, the songs that they sang and stuff like that. Yeah. We used to do that kind of stuff, Milton Brunson and, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So anyway, yeah, so that's kind of a little bit more of the history there, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, that's cool. So, um, yeah. so as far as like your um, – because you, you said that you were born to a teenager – um, teenagers, rather, and they were significantly young, right? They were like, what do you say, 14, 15? Yeah, my mom was 14, my dad was 15, so they, they definitely was, was making moves early. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. So, um, so, so being that you come from that kind of background, man, like I know that typically when it comes to like single mothers, uh, teenage mothers, there's a lot of struggle involved with that. Do you recall any struggles like that, or do you remember how tough it used to be or whatever, or was it tough? Well, I know that my dad was always there, but the struggles really came just from my mom's background, too, because my mom came from an abusive background, 
And her, she, I think her mom had her at 14. So we had that generational thing going on mm-hmm. where her mom had her young and, um, I, um, and then, um, she had, she was living in an abusive type situation. One situation where my dad being her boyfriend was like, he almost had to take the dude out cause he was doing some stuff and beating mm-hmm. on, um, beating on my mom and my grandmother and that kind of thing. So, I know she came up in that and just in the projects in Charleston, but once it came to her having me, he was there. So there wasn't an issue with her just doing it on her own. He he was right there from the beginning. Okay. So I know I'm familiar with a segment of Charleston called the Geechees. Uh, you wouldn't happen to have any kind of Geechee background, would you? My all my family, a lot of my family has Geechee background. If you listen to my grandmother, where she's gone to be with the Lord now, and my other people, I mean, you they would be like, you ain't no. I mean, it's just like the the, the, the dialect <laughs> is, is real deep. Um, I wouldn't even be able to understand my people uh, a lot of times just because of how how deep it goes. But yeah, definitely wow. Geechee background. Now, you know what I found out that was so interesting about Geechee? It's like their accent sounds like they're from the islands, a lot of Right. And I used to think that they were from the islands because I was like, what the heck is it? This don't sound like it's a a South Carolina accent. So what is this accent? And um, so I was, like I said, I was stationed there for about six months I was there. And so I was hearing this accent when I came across a couple people, and like I said, I heard the term Geechee and all that, and when I saw them, they looked like, some of them looked like they were from Trinidad or something like that to me, you know. Um, But it was just kind of interesting to hear that and to know that they have, like, their own kind of community there. And um, You know, one of the things I found out later on, actually last year was that, I was studying some things about history in Charleston and that a lot of the the ships that came, they came from the island. They didn't come, a lot of them didn't come directly from Africa, but they came from the islands. They had already been in the islands, and then they came from there and came into the Charleston ports. And so that makes sense that that it would be something similar. Okay. Okay. So that's cool, man. Yeah. So, um, so now, uh, as you said, your father went into the military. He was obviously in the Air Force if he was at Shaw. And ironically, I used to go to Shaw Air Force Base a lot as a kid, too, to play basketball. We used to always go up there to the gym, and um, and that was like a frequent spot that we hit. You know, whenever we wanted to play basketball, we would go up there. And back in those days, it was easier to get on a base. These days, it's like, Every base is like Fort Knox now. You can't get on it without any kind of ID, military-wise yeah. or whatever. So, but back then, if you had your driver's license and I guess if you showed a registration, I don't know exactly what they were showing, but I know they would show a driver's license, and then you would just sign into something and they'll let you on the base. Um, so we used to go play basketball all the time up there. Um, so... In that time frame when you were in Sumter, um, you know, that's when you started to, I guess, now be more aware of surroundings, so to speak. You know, when we were kids, 
you know, before like fifth grade or up to fifth grade or something, we seem to be oblivious to a lot of things. But by the time yeah. we're in the middle school age, that's when our eyes seem to start getting open to things. So being that you came there during that time frame, I mean, when you came from Charleston to Sumter, because I don't really know what the – I mean, I do know some of the differences, but was it like a big, big deal? Because, I mean, well, first of all, you said you overseas. So I'm thinking, like, you in Germany and Holland, you were learning German or and probably Dutch or whatever, right? Right, learning Dutch. Mm-hmm. So, like, did you know how to speak Dutch fluently? That's the only thing I remember. And education. When I went from Holland to, to Charleston and from Charleston to something, it was real difficult because they were real, they were a lot slower in the educational system. And so I started falling behind and couldn't keep up with the curriculum, you know, that was set up in America just because of how they were doing it. But they were sweet people, but it was more about being sweet to you and being kind and not really educating you right. So that started my journey of, struggling in school because from then on I had a bad uh, a bad situation with the teachers and you know in, in at Shaw and um like I said I came into that uh last uh elementary year so the teachers at Shaw was real rough they were still beating kids back then you know so uh, I, got I remember that I was just you know so I was like I'm not interested in school and I just started despising education ever since. But that's yeah, that's that's what when that was the main thing that stands out to me as far as transition. As far as the environment and the difference between Holland and 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 Sumter in terms of just the demographics with people, I really didn't I really didn't have too much of that to think about at that time. But Dawson is more of a it's, it's it's down south, but it's more of a city. It's a lot going on in Charleston, so it's more of a city type environment. Sumter is more retirement place, old, uh, you know, the old military um, retirees, and and then just Sumter folks. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. It's, it's definitely different. Well, you know, there's a funny thing. So there's a couple of things I want to touch on real quick. Um, but the first thing is you went. You said you started in um, elementary school there. So, but you're saying that like you were on the base. You were not at like Alice Drive or anything like that. Yeah, I was on the base. My um, the second half of the, the my last elementary year. I guess that was what um, would have been what's that fifth grade. Okay, but yeah. um, did you start going to regular schools off base after that? Yeah, we moved. My parents got a home in Sumter, and so we moved. And so my middle school started out at Alice Drive Middle. Okay. All right. So um, ironically, when I was going to school there, I started out at um, Bates. Bates Middle 
was where I went for my sixth grade. And then when um, seventh grade came, I started going to Alice Drive. So I went to Alice Drive my seventh and eighth grade year. And okay. then and then from there, I went to, at that time, Haynesworth was, uh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think I might be saying this wrong. It was, uh, it was a spot that, um, it was like they had an annex that was for ninth graders. I don't remember what the name of it is. Do you remember that? I mean, did you go to, you went to something high, right? Yeah, I went to something high. So did they have that annex still for ninth grade? No, not at that time, but I think that the time you're talking about on Hainsworth, was it where that, um, that I don't know what the name of the community center was, but was it like right around where that um, hall is, that community center? I'm going to be honest with you, bro. I don't remember much about details and yeah, something like that. But, but Hainsworth, that, okay, so I was right there, Hainsworth. It was like a complex. At the time that I was going to something high, they had a separate complex for only ninth graders, and it was called Hainsworth. And then when you get to the 10th grade, you go to the main high school. Now, I don't know why they had it like that, but they did. And so, um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's how it was for me. And um, by the time I got to 12th grade, I only had about – I had only been there for about a couple of months of my 12th grade year, and then we moved to, uh, to uh, Florida. So – that was my experience in Sumter, basically, you know, late late uh, elementary all the way to late high school, and then I was out before high school finished. But yeah. now, with you being from, okay, being that you came from Holland, now you, you said something that sounded kind of interesting, and I'm kind of a, a little confused. You said that school became tough because it was slower. It was slower in Holland. Oh, in Holland it was slower. It was slower in Holland. Oh, they that's where. Okay, okay, okay. For some reason, I thought you were saying something was slower than Holland. Okay. All right. So you got to a point where, man, this is what's ironic about you because I know that you're a scholastic type of guy. And even though you might have hated school back then, you're very much into knowledge and understanding and and and, and um, education now. And yeah. so, what I want to know is how how did before we get into that? See, I'm I'm ahead of myself. Let me let me just stay here for now where you are in school. <laughs> so, in okay. school, while you were in school, going to something high, and you know, even in middle school and all that when you started having these problems in school, what did that start to push you towards? Were you pushed towards the streets then or what? Yeah, most definitely. You know, first, going a little bit further back, you know, when whenever you're in a military household, you meet military um, families and you have people. And I, I think about military families as they collect from the cultures that they visit, whatever communities they came from. So I was connected to different people from all over the nation because of the military. And 
I wanted to connect with them and I used to build with them. So I had an identity crisis. One thing, if you listen to me, you probably couldn't just tell that I came from South Carolina because I had people from Chicago, from New York, from different places. And I would adopt those dialects and those accents because I just was confused. And, and since I, you know, a lot of military children and military brats, a lot of times have some um, confusion issues because they move around so much and meet so many different people. They don't have a sense of, you know, this is where I'm from. So I gravitated more towards hanging out with my friends, of course, doing that kind of thing. And anything that was formal, formal education, I felt like I'm stupid, I'm slow. The only thing I know I'm good at is singing, singing, writing songs, so from a young age, I was doing that. I got that from my dad. You know, he was in a music group and that kind of thing. So all I wanted to do was sing. And my my mom is a very strong person that deals with education and academics. Um, and so she always pushed that, even with my sisters. One became a doctor. The other became a lawyer. But me, you know, I didn't go towards that because anything that was formal education, even from back then, I was not feeling it. If it didn't have to do with music. And so she would say stuff like, well, what if, you know, because she would talk about what are your plans for the future? What if that doesn't work? And that used, that messed me up. That, and we've had conversations about that. I didn't want to hear from my parents, what if it doesn't work? You know, only thing that I know, only thing that I can bank on, you know, all my eggs in one basket was making it in music. And so... Anything that had to do with math and the other stuff, nah, I wasn't feeling it. So I struggled there. Wow, man, that's that's very interesting because when I talk to you, now I'll, I want to kind of like uh, confirm or affirm some of the things you just said because I know that when I first met you and I was talking to you, I was like, he's from Sumter? <laughs> and in my mind, I was like, he don't sound like he's from Sumter. <laughs> I'm like, I, I ain't never known anybody in Sumter to sound like him. So I was like, okay, there's got to be something to this story right here because how does he sound like that? And so that's why when I started getting to know you more and you were telling me about your past, I was like, oh, now it makes sense. Okay, I understand. And, um, you know, even though mine wasn't the exact same way as yours, I moved around a lot when I was growing up, too. And so I was changing schools a lot. And it might not be changing cities as much as maybe it was for you, but it sounded like for you, you probably were in, like, one city when you went to Holland and one city in Germany, right? Right, from Germany to Holland and then to Charleston and, and then to something. Okay, so you switched to four, you went through four cities. I went through essentially four cities myself. See, I used to live, I was born in Baltimore. I used to live in a um, city called Glen Burnie at one time, which is right outside of Baltimore. Then I lived in uh, Sumter, and then I lived in uh, Naples, Florida. Those are the places I lived growing up. So I lived in four different cities also. And then, um, and during that time, I kind of went through that similar type of, uh, there was some degree of 
some of this struggle with identity in a way, but it was more along the lines of, I'm going to tell you, man, this, I know this sounds kind of funny, but my greatest thing was my greatest fear, so to speak, and, and struggle was to not sound like Southerners. I did not want to sound like them at all. Like I hated down South. And <laughs> so I was like, there's no way. Cause you know, when I was younger and like, let's say I would come and visit in Baltimore people started saying, oh, man, you sound like them. I'm like, no, I don't. And I would be mad when they would say that. And right. <laughs> and then it was like, so, you know, but <clears throat> then when I went into the military, that turned around, that whole thing changed, like, you know, and then when I came out of the military, it was like I was a whole different person completely. Yeah. And so that's the kind of, you know, where I am now, you know, the kind of person I am now came out of my military experience mostly. But, um, so I know I can identify with you on that. I can, I can relate to you on that. Um, now when you were out in the street, so here's the thing that's interesting about you now, by the time you were here and, and, um, or there rather in Sumter, your parents were in ministry stuff, right? So, so interesting about that. I, I want to go back a little bit. So my parents, they were, um, when they moved to Shaw, they weren't in ministry, but they were just devout believers serving in the church. You know, my dad started a music group, so I guess that would be the first inclination of ministry, and they started traveling around singing. My mom was teaching Sunday school, so she was doing that. Um, and so all the way up until my senior year in high school, it was just living with parents that were just, you know, just faithful in the church. And and then they felt the call to minister and become pastors. And so they began to be pastors. And I, this is jumping a, a little bit ahead, but I'll just say this. By the time they became pastors, I was way out there in the street. So I definitely wasn't feeling nothing that they were trying to do at that time, even though I had that rich heritage and background of just being yeah. in church. But I wasn't trying to feel none of that by that point, you know. So <laughs> Okay, it, I got it you. It was a struggle for me <laughs> to even be a part of that. Because now they're founding a church, and I'm like, nah, that's not what I'm trying to do, you know. So that's interesting because I had not exactly the same way, but I was kind of like that by the time I got out of high school. But it wasn't, well, let me, let me not say it that way. When I went to the military, after being in the military for some months, my disposition changed, and I started to become a different person. And I remember after about six months of being in the military, Maybe more than that, but it was it was it wasn't too much more than six months that I started being into party life, and I was all about girls and parties and stuff like that. Man, I just wanted to go to clubs and whatnot. Yeah. It was like it was like this thing. I was just kind of living out what I wanted to do when I was in high school, and I remember right. um, there was this one point in time when I was in high school that I told my mom about this club, and and I said, Ma, um, I heard about this club that, you know, is up. I think, I don't know exactly where it was located, but however, wherever it was located, 
I was going to be able to get a ride with some other kids and we were going to go there. But um, I asked my mom if I could go, and she said no. And I said, well, why? <laughs> she was like, she said, because what kind of example are you going to be setting for those kids? I was like, ma, nobody's going to know nothing about me. I'm going to be in a club. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, but it was just funny because, like, I'm up here thinking, like, I'm going to be anonymous in a club. Why does it even matter if I'm there or not? But yeah. really, you know, in all honesty, even though my mom didn't give me another answer other than that at the time, I was just, like, feeling like it's just, like, stupid that you wouldn't let me go to go to a, a club one time just to see what it's like. So when I got in the military, I was all about clubbing. I was like, y'all go to as oh, many clubs had, as I can go to. You had to wake up for a lot of time. I'm going to do it in. I mean, I was hearing about all these parties when I was in high school that people were going to, and they were going to clubs and stuff, and I was like, man, I don't know nothing about that. And so when I got to that point when I was out of my mom's house and I was free as an adult, I was just partying it up, going to all the clubs that they could that they were having in the city. Wherever they were, I was going. I mean, any party I heard about, I was going to that. You know what I'm saying? I was like at everything. And so that's what Yeah, man. So um so I can feel I feel you. So just say on that, so because of growing up in the type of household I grew up in, you know, like I said, we only listened to gospel music. It was the Hawkins, the Winans, the Clark Sisters, you know, all of the, you know, whoever yeah. was the great of that time. But then I, be, I got introduced, I don't know if it was Fresh Prince at first or if it was MC Light or something, I got in, introduced to hip-hop. So then I had like a dual thing going on. I had that background but then i started getting interested real interested in hip-hop at that time and then um because of my affiliations with the the different people that were coming in with school i won't say i was ever in a gang i was never in a gang but i would say i had enough of relationships where you could say i was gang affiliated put it like that blood then on the side and so with that being said we would end up at the um um what we would call base housing, what we call the five, the 5,000 area. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, my mom, my mom was always real prophetic. So there was a time where I just wanted to get out. Like you said, go to the, go, it wasn't a club, but a house party, shots breaking yeah. out, firing, we running out, we running, trying to, you know, get away from these bullets flying. And she was like, I came home. She's like, I had a dream that you were, um, that you were, um, shot that you were, and I just started praying for you and that kind of thing. And so I had many instances where I'm out there, really, you could say a church boy, out there trying to be in the streets. But God mm-hmm. is continually um, giving my parents information, especially my mom, information, yeah. saying this is going on, this is going on, and she would cover me, and different things happening. And that, that happened all throughout, you know, my childhood experience. Yeah, man, that's wow. interesting. Yeah, that's interesting because my grandmother was like that, and mm. she was the one that prayed for everybody in the family, and she pretty much would know 
about certain things happening, or at least she would be able to um, thwart it by her prayers. And um, so, but I know that my grandmother is also the very first person to tell me about my call into the ministry when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And she told me about this. I don't know exactly how young I was, but I know I definitely knew by the time I was eight years old. But I probably knew even before then. She told me. She didn't tell me specifics. She said, you're called to the ministry. You're going to preach the gospel. And that was that. That's something that she knew from an early age when I was really young. And I always grew up knowing that. And that was one of the things that kind of, I would say, probably anchored me that even though there were certain things I wanted to do and that I was into or whatever, in the back of my mind, I kept knowing that I'm called into the ministry. And so that was uh, an interesting thing to carry all those years because it's ironic. When I was in the Navy, there was times when I was around guys that um, were straight up like, they never had a relationship with Jesus. They didn't go to church or anything like that. And they were just straight up sinners. And here I was, I would be around them. And yet there were still certain things about me that they could look at and say, yo, what's different about you? Why do you, you don't do certain things. It was just something about me that they will always know there was something different about me. And there were certain things. Yeah. There was, there were certain things they wouldn't do around me or say around me or whatever. And I would still be feeling left out, even though I'm trying to be in. I'm trying yep. to be down with whatever they doing, and I'm like, "Dad, yo, why y'all be keeping me out of stuff?" <laughs> they can see it. They can see it. Yeah, it's just funny, man. Like same thing with me. Like um, there would be times where I would, we would be trying to do some things, and like let's set up our bylaws. This is like talking about some gang affiliation stuff. That's yeah. set up our bylaws, but we're gonna we're gonna let you be the the um be the prophet or the priest and you know if you pray that you know god would take care of us and you know we they're merging the foolishness <laughs> like we're going out we're going out doing dirt but you know we know that you connected to god so let's oh, go ahead and man. make sure that you, you, you uh, lift up a prayer to make sure this safe safe travels and that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> yo that's man. funny man that is funny yeah, so, um, so, all right, so around the time when you were getting ready to get out of high school or or you were already out of high school, did you end up, like, moving away from something right away or what? So right before we get to that, I just want to highlight that I had um, gotten this girl pregnant, and I was about 17, so I was, like, in my, well, I guess 16 when I got her pregnant. I was in my junior year in the summer going into the senior year. Um, and I got this girl pregnant. And so then I, my dad went to, um, I think he had a bid, uh, not a bid, but <laughs> he just decided. What's it called in the military? What that's, you a, have to do? that's a tour, a tour. A tour. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me. Why don't you clarify the difference between a bid and a tour for some people out there? Like, I'm people. I'm making people think that he got locked up for you know did some time or something like that. But, <laughs> but no, nah, he went. He so he did a tour in Saudi Arabia, and at that time, you know, I was kind of like 
the man of the house. You know, I'm the the grown, the, I'm the oldest son in the house. Mom is trying to work and, you know, deal with us, and he's over there. So, you know, I really feel like I got some freedom now, right, because the authority is left. And so now I'm, I mess, I'm messing around. That's when I lost my virginity, that kind of thing, got this girl pregnant. And so now it's a whole nother world for me because now that's going on and I have to really become an adult a lot faster. So I get a job, that kind of thing. But my main thing is let me just get out. Let me just graduate and get out of here as soon as possible. So once I, once I ended up graduating, um, I was part of this group in the community was called DGAF. Don't give a F. And we were uh-huh. a combination, kind of like Wu Tang, where combination of singers, singers, rappers, um, musicians, uh-huh. and we were trying to get on. We were trying to, we were trying to really blow up because that's that time when Wu Tang was real heavy, Mob Deep, those deep squads, like fifteen, twenty different people, and uh-huh. well, we were trying to get on like that. And so I ended up, some things happened. I ended up leaving the house and I stayed in Sumter with some of my partners for a few months. And then I ended up moving to Atlanta um, because we were trying to get a deal with LaFace records. Um, And there was some contact with that, that fell, that fell through the ground. And the boy that I I was moving in with Atlanta, his uncle was a, was a homosexual. I didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. So he had a house full of, some whole, a whole lot of craziness going on. And so I was like, I can't live there. So I ended up moving out of that house and ended up living under the bridge working at, um, I think it was, who was it? It was Burger King working at Burger King with my partner. We were still rapping, writing songs, trying to get on, but I wasn't living there. And so that started the journey of leaving Sumter and being in Atlanta, West End Atlanta, um, and really being homeless at that time. Wow. Just trying to get away. In so rebellion, really, because... Yeah, go ahead, go, go ahead. ahead. Now, I was just saying, just in rebellion, because really I just wanted to leave that structure, because like I said, my parents started a church. They were trying to do that thing. I wasn't trying to feel that. I wanted to pursue a music career, and um, I wanted to do it my way. And because of all those events, I ended up, and I didn't, I definitely, because they was popping pills and we were getting drunk and high and doing stuff to where I didn't know I could pass out and somebody could, you know, violate my space. <laughs> I was like, I'd rather just live under the bridge <laughs> than be, be in the midst of that foolishness. So that's what was going on then. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. So you were living homeless under a bridge. Tell me about that experience, man. Man, that experience was really eye-opening because I realized there were doctors, there were professionals who were there. Um, now, this was in the summertime, so it wasn't, like, cold. Yeah. It was, matter of fact, it was around the time of the Olympics. Whenever, that, I think that was 96, I don't know, I don't remember, but it was around that time of the Olympics in Atlanta. And Isn't I that the time them. when they got the bomb? Was that when the yeah. bomb went off? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I was in that, and I was just like, yo, I'm out here. I'm out here trying to figure out what's what. 
<laughs> and it was an interesting time, but I still felt like I'm free, like I'm grown, I'm out of my parents, I'm I'm out of, I'm from up under that jurisdiction, I'm making my own way. I never was homeless by force, it was by choice. And, now, uh, I want to know, though, because I know that there's a lot of people who fit that category. They 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 could be in a house, but they have made a choice to be homeless. Now, you're talking about doctors and stuff. Tell me about that a little more, man, because I'm trying to get into the mind of someone who's in the streets like that, especially someone who's educated or whatever. So come on, tell us a little bit about that, man, because that's an interesting thing to understand. Well, one thing I will say, and this is, I just want to say this on the, um, in the beginning, this is not a description of all homeless people. But yeah. I would say there's a lot of homeless people that are stubborn that are very rigid in their thinking and don't want you to help them get out of that position, that condition. They just want you to just hook them up. And I saw a lot of them like that, a lot of educated but prideful, stubborn people who did not want to change, and they just kind of, like, accepted their lot. Now, that may not have been everybody, but the people I interacted with, that was my that was the eye opening thing for me. It's like, okay, you really don't have to be in this, but you just don't want to go another way. So it was them and then it was a combination of just the people who were just struggling and they would bum rush people's cars in Atlanta and try to wash their cars and clean them up to get some um get some money even though the people didn't ask for it. So there was a lot of hustling going on, a lot of different types of people. And I wasn't out there for, like, years. I was out there for, like, a few months, about three or four months until I moved. And it's a, it's a story with that, too. But, yeah, that's what was going on. So, in other words, you were only out there long enough so it wasn't cold so you couldn't tough it out anymore. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because, like, that's my kryptonite. Anybody that knows me, I hate the cold. Like, when it start getting cold, like, I need to start making some other moves. It's not cool in the summertime. Oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> he, wasn't hard, he wasn't a hardened homeless person. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't a hardcore, diehard homeless. It's not in me. It's, yeah. <laughs> I know the rules, bro. I feel you, man. I feel you so so in that situation man because i'm just really i really want to again kind of like let me let me just say this and i know that again as you said it's not a blanket statement what i'm about to say however what i have noticed and i've seen even in passing even though i haven't lived on the streets and i don't know nothing about being homeless or whatever in that sense but my observation from seeing the same people every day at the same light and everything, when in Baltimore City, it's almost like it seems like every light you go to is going to be a homeless person there waiting. And it just irritates me so much. And my thing is, like, kind of like something what you, that you said, I feel like a lot of them, they just don't want to do what they they need to do and can do to get off the street. Because to to me, there's no reason, especially when I see somebody that's younger than me, even somebody as old as me, I don't see there's no reason why they can't get off the streets and get their life turned back around. That makes me mad when I see those guys out there because I know 
all they're doing is loafing off of everybody else because they don't want to do nothing. No, they, they're lazy. They don't want to work. They don't want to actually do anything to better society. And so the bottom line is it's like very selfish and lazy that I see a lot of them as being. Would you say that that's something that you saw a lot of? Yeah, a little bit of it uh, was that. But then some of it, and, and I agree with everything you're saying, uh, some of it, to speak from that side of it, it's like a sense of freedom. Like like you said, I don't have to work. Basically, I just need to get enough money to get some good food, maybe get me some drugs or something like that, and that's a good day. I accomplish, you know, every day you wake up with an objective. I want to eat, and I want to get high. I want to feel good. And if I can get through the day and do that, that was a good day. And so it's no responsibilities, no other stuff. It's just daily survival. And it's a certain kind of feeling if you're living like that, a certain kind of feeling of relief that, hey, I made it through the day. I got something. You know, sometimes there will be people who would, um, like with the rest, with the um, fast food joint, they throw out their food at a certain time. And sometimes if you know the spot, they'll give you, like, bags of cheeseburgers and fries and all that. It's like, okay, it's like you want you scored, you know, and they just live in day-to-day. Like, said, like we said, it's not everybody because some people really did find themselves in tough times and hard times, but it is a good amount, a good percentage of people. It's like it's just easier to live like this and not have to worry about any of the other responsibilities that everybody else has to live with. So being that you are from, uh, well, let me rephrase this. Being that you were in that kind of an environment of being in the streets, homeless, and you saw how these people are, what would you say are there signs, so to speak, that you would say you look for to know if a person is in that situation, not by choice, but by circumstance or, you know, like there's somebody that they want to get ahead in life. They want to get out of that situation, but they don't know how to like, would you say there are certain signs of a person like that, like that you would look for that you would say, Oh, I know they're not just trying to loaf off of people. They actually are, they found themselves in a bad situation and that's how they ended up out here. Yeah. A few signs. And, and this may not be everybody across the board that's in that situation, but a few signs that I saw was first of all, attitude. They were grateful when they were given something. A lot of times it's the attitude of some people feel entitled. Like they really get pissed off of you or whatever. Other people are like, Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. That's okay. Hey, God bless you. Whatever. But and so it's the one thing is the sign is the attitude when they interact with people that they're asking for help and how how they um, deal with them. But another thing is a lot of times they'll offer services like they didn't just want it for free. So they will offer, hey, I'll um, clean your tires or, you know, wash your windows or they wanted to work for it. They they wanted to invest in the fact that I'm not just getting this for free. I'm actually sowing into it being that I'm working for something. I'm I'm reaping what I'm sowing. So you would see that as well. Um, but other things is that whenever people would come with programs and different things, 
they would be the ones who would sign up or, you know, they would be the ones who would, you know, give their name. You know, basically they would posture themselves when the people who came around with the services and help, they would posture themselves to want to be a part of that instead of just disengaging from that and just asking for you. It's kind of easy to spot the ones that that's all they want to do is loaf because that's all they do. You know, they don't engage in anything else. They just want you to give them money. And if you don't give them money or if you say, or even sometimes people will be like, nah, I'm not going to give you money because I don't know if you're going to do drugs with it, whatever. I'll go ahead and get you some food. And then you have some people that get mad about that. You know, yeah. they want the money. They don't want the food. So you can kind of see it like that. But like now, I said, I wasn't out for too long, so I don't have the full composite. But that's just from my eye glance of what, what I was seeing. Yeah, so, but in those situations, what would you say, because I'm, you know, in all honesty, man, I don't have, I mean, I have an idea of how to get those kind of people on their feet, but it requires certain types of resources. So in other words, like, first of all, you got to have somewhere for them to live, and then you have a, you got to have a way to either help them get trained to be able to have skills, to be able to work in certain environments, or you'll be able to, you know, get them some kind of a job that doesn't really require skills per se that you have to learn beforehand, but you can get, get those skills on the job or whatnot. How hard do you think it is to get a person who is homeless back into society um so i'm a part of a ministry now called seed in the ground Ministries, which is basically a holistic approach to um dealing with people whether it's homelessness or um they're on the brink of losing their house you know that kind of thing it's i, I won't say i won't say it's hard you just have to be knowledgeable, knowledgeable about the resources that's available and connect them to the right thing. And they have to just be willing to go through the steps. And that, I would say they might consider it hard just because of all of the different loops you have to go through, but it's doable. It can be done. It's, and there are, um, there are agencies available. Um, but it does take that person being just as aggressive as you are as the person trying to help them. They need to be just as aggressive as wanting um, wanting to move out of that situation as you are. And a lot of times we find that um, we're more passionate about them getting out of their situation than they are. Uh, but if you can find somebody that's passionate about getting out, it's not difficult. There's agencies out there. We can make it happen. Well, that's good to know, man. And um, <clears throat> before we end the interview, I want to definitely get you to uh, either – share the information on that kind of program, even the one that you're part of or whatnot and, and go from there. But so now you were out there for several months out in the street. There's one other question I got to ask you. How in the world do you sleep? Because in my mind, I'm thinking about people getting stabbed up, robbed, whatever. Um, how in the world do you have enough peace to go to sleep and not think about being killed in your sleep? Uh, 
I, I'll just say for me, I just wasn't in the mindset where I was worried about it at that time. I always felt like I'm blessed. I'm gifted. I'm in this situation. I'm not supposed to be, but God got me. So I was kind of like, <laughs> where, wherever I'm at, I know he got me because I ain't even where I'm supposed to be. So I, I never had that problem. <laughs> but, but I do know it's a, it's a real issue, you know, as far as crime and that kind of thing. But for me, that never bothered me. I always felt like I'm about to be out of this situation any time now. I really felt at that point, I'm about to get a call and they're going to hear our music and they're going to put us on and the situation is going to change drastically any moment now. So I guess that was my, my consolation too. So if you were out in the street though, you had a job. Yeah, we were still working. I was working with my partner at, um, at Burger King. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. You did say that. I forgot. Okay. My fault. Yeah. All right. So now I'm going to fast forward to the point in time when you were getting ready to get off the street. How did that, how did that happen? So I met my aunt, well, I, I was calling my cousin, and she was married to this brother who was in the military at, in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I told her about my situation, and she was like, we always was real close. And she was like, you really can move up here. And I talked to my husband, and he's good with it. And so we can just, like, pay for you to get a bus ticket to move to Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I was like, I don't know nothing about Wyoming, but that's better than being homeless. <laughs> so I made that move to Cheyenne, Wyoming, even though I was only there for two weeks. I was there for two weeks. She was so excited to have me there. I was there for two weeks. Somebody knocked on the door and said, we're selling magazines. But we also are recruiting. So if you want to sell magazines, you can move in with us. Here's the great thing about it. We travel all across the nation, and we sell magazines, and we live in different hotels. They said hotels, not motels. We live in different hotels, and we party all night. So we sell magazines in the day. We party at night. And got girls there and all that. I was like, "Cool, I'm with it." So I took <laughs> everything that I had and moved in with them. And so two weeks from moving to Cheyenne, Wyoming, I'm a part of this magazine crew that's traveling around, quote unquote, selling <laughs> magazines. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Yo, this story is getting more and more interesting. So, <laughs> so when you got linked up with these dudes. How long did that last, and where did that take you? So that lasted, it ended up taking me to, to being locked up in Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee. Um, but I found out later that, that selling magazines was a scam. We weren't never really selling magazines. We were scamming people. This thing was a setup to where they were collecting runaways and different people, and we would go around um, – knocking on doors, telling people that they were going to get Jet, Ebony, whatever. They never got it. And they really had some drug stuff going on that was, um, it was an undercover saying we were selling magazines. They had other stuff going on. Long story short, I got caught up in it. I was driving the vehicle, got caught up in some stuff, ended up getting locked up. And then I ended up getting released and getting back to Sumter, uh, about a year later from that. Now, I got a question. So when you were out there so-called selling magazines or whatever, 
people will give you all money, like, right on the spot? Most definitely. We were trained assassins when it came to sales. We would wake up 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, get into our little circles, do our chants, and talk about the different ways. We would have these mock demonstrations of how you would sell and overcoming obstacles, and then we would go and be released. We used to ride in these suburban and be released into the neighborhood. Wow. And we would find, like, the gullible people and the people who had the signs that said, no soliciting. That's the place. That's the first places we would go to. subscription and whatever, get their money, and that was banking. We were banking. Wow, that is funny. So, <laughs> you know what? I I think I know. Now, I'm not saying you were part of this. But I remember people coming to a house that I lived at, and they were talking about selling magazines. I don't know if they were the same type of people that you were linked up to, but I ain't never. I was like, man, get out of here with that. I ain't buying no magazines. <laughs> Probably was. <laughs> this, then, this would be the spill. The spill was I'm about 5,000 points from getting a trip to Cancun because we were always we always basically sold them with the sad story that, Hey, I'm almost about to win a trip to Cancun. All I need is your subscription, whatever, and I'm going to win. And, and uh, we never went to Cancun. <laughs> oh, that's crazy, yo. That's... But the crazy thing is that I believe that we were really a real magazine crew the whole time until other stuff came out. Wow, that is crazy, yo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Dang, how many people were in that crew? It was like, it would be like 20 to 30 different crews. We had different bands, different places we would we would go. We th- went through um, Colorado. Wow. We went through um, uh, uh, Staten Island, New York. We went through Florida. We went through Alabama. We would just, we would basically saturate the area, get as much as we could out of it and then on to the next city and do the same thing over. And it was wow. it was motels and not hotels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was a hotel, motel, holiday inn. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. It was rough. It was rough. <laughs> but it was a lot of, it was a lot, lot of drug trafficking going on, a lot of um, homeless people who needed a job or needed some place to stay, a lot of runaway children. You know, they kind of preyed mm-hmm. on the people who were outcasts and just used that. And they had a, it was, it was really, I guess maybe another time I could go deep into it, but it was really a cult type situation because you had the best sellers would be able to drive and sit up front. The worst sellers had to um, sit in the huh. back of the suburban or sit on the tire or, or um, sleep on the floors. Uh-huh. And so it was really a, a, a uh, cast type situation where if you perform greatly, you could sleep on the bed. You could, you know, take money and go out that night and, uh, you know, tour the city and, you know, observe the city life. If you were a bum and you couldn't sell, you just basically just go in the room, sleep on the floor, and try it next the next day. So it was crazy. So apparently, a whole lot. So apparently, though, they were feeding everybody even if they didn't sell. Yeah, everybody got a basic amount. Okay. A basic amount. 
So it, so what are some of the things that it taught you that some of the principles or whatever that it taught you while you were doing that? Um, a few principles, one of the time, uh, a few, I, because we were interacting with different people, there were a lot of people who were into Satanism, witchcraft, occultism. And so it taught me about demonology, understanding, I, you know, I never did, growing up in the home I grew up in, they kind of downplayed the demonic at that time. Like, you know, this Jesus is real. Everything else is false. But there was no credence to the 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 power that's in darkness and so we saw people manifesting demonically i got exposed to the rock and roll and then tripping on acids and seeing demons manifest through people and reading the satanic bible anton lavey's bible and i was into that i got into that as crazy as that sounds i I was i was with a whole lot of caucasians and you know i never grew up on rock and roll but i started listening to the heavy metal it just taught me a whole lot about people and the experiences that they're in. And there would be times when we would go to see psychics. The psychics would tell me, Hey, I can't read you. You know, you belong to somebody else. Uh, I can't, I see two angels on your side. I can't, um, I, I can't give you a reading. Or there was wow. a time where I w- went to a door knocked on the door, and this lady, I guess she was a prophet or maybe a prophetess, she said, what are you doing here? This is when I was in Staten Island. She said, what are you doing here? You need to be home. Your parents are praying for you. People all over the nation are praying for you. And she began to start praying with me. I'm being religious, so I, she starts praying in tongues. So I start praying in tongues, too, like I know how to do that, even though <laughs> I was way out of the will of God. Um, she said, no, no, I can pray in tongues, too. And so I'm doing all that, but she was like, you need to go home. So people would be locating me, even on the, from the wow. demonic side and on the spiritual side, saying you're out of place. And I found out later that um, my mom and my grandmother had prayer warriors praying for me every day, nonstop, because I truly believed the enemy was trying to take me out at that time, but I was preserved. So all of that was kind of like a, to me, it was like a crash course in spiritualism and spiritual authority and into the demonic and understanding that. And um, also just seeing how people could take up crews and move from city to city in saturated area and just understanding some things about, about movement and activity, you know, whether it be for good or bad. It just, it taught me, it was kind of like, I didn't go to, um, the highest I went with ministry training was associate ministry. But, but to me, it did more for that than I would have, than I would have got just getting a, uh, a PhD or any kind of doctorate in ministry because I just learned so much about people, about myself and about the state that people are in, uh, you know, all across the country, especially young people and dealing with everything they were dealing with. So I know that at some point in time, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about. So one of the things I want to ask you about is five percenters. But the other thing I want to ask you about is education, specifically saying, you know, um, going to seminary, stuff like that. But let's start with the five percenter thing. So I'm assuming that during this time, this is when you came across five percenters and the way they believe. No, this well. When I went to the, did the magazine thing, that was mainly on the Eurocentric side, so it wasn't none okay. of that. But prior, 
prior to moving to Atlanta, when I was still with my DGAF crew and, and I moved out with my friends, moved out of my parents' house, the people that I was involved with at that time, is they're the ones that introduced me to the 5% doctrine, and that's the people I was living with. That's the people okay. I was staying with. And they basically were just shaming me as far as how much I didn't know about the scriptures. And yeah. they kind of gave me a love for a love for building and ciphers and getting knowledge because I didn't have that anywhere else. So I got that 5% foundation um, before I moved to Atlanta. Okay. So, um, so now going back, when you were talking about these um, experiences with uh, people manifesting and stuff like that, these things were happening with people that you were selling magazines with? Yes. When wow. we were partying, we were doing the acid and, and, you know, reading into the satanic Bibles and hearing them chanting and doing the astral projection with the Wiccans that were out there. Like, I was meeting with people I would have never met in Sumter or anywhere else. So, it, wow. it was crazy. <laughs> wow. So, like, now, when you were going to these neighborhoods and stuff, though, were you mainly interacting with Caucasians, or was it like a mixture of people? It was a mixture because, you know, you go to the hood. Some people were better at going into the hood, and some uh -huh. people were better at going into the high-end neighborhoods with people, you know, who were rolling their money. I uh -huh. feel like some of them knew we were knew it wasn't legit, but just was trying to help us out, so they wrote checks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I ended up because I had an issue with dealing with, um, at that time, I had an issue with dealing with white people and dealing with people of authority or stature. So I always wanted them to send me to the hood. So when we went to Miami, just take uh -huh. me to the, the, the gutter places and I'll be good there. I, I'm good okay. around them. And so that's where I was basically doing most of my magazine selling work in Miami and, or in, in any hood of whatever city we were in. So I want to know, bro, because, you know, one of the things that I know that you know about is that, well, first of all, you and I have had many conversations about racial things. And I'm curious because I never really got into this discussion with you. What was it that caused you to have this issue with Caucasians and to that point where, um, or even authority? Because both of those things at a certain point in my life when I was in my 20s, or like in my late teens, I had a problem with them as well. So I'm curious what it was for you. Well, for me, the introduction was in school, going back to um, school and then being the primary um, figures and images as far as being the disciplinarians when I was failing school or barely passing grades and they were my teachers and they were the principals and, you know, they just represented everything that I didn't want or didn't like at that time. So I didn't, I wasn't comfortable. And my sister, like I told you, one of my sisters is a lawyer. The other one is a doctor. What's up, family? This is Norman. Thanks for listening to New Numa. We appreciate you, and that includes your feedback. What do you like most about the podcast? What are your favorite subjects? What types of guests would you like to hear more? Shoot us an email today at new.numa.podcast at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts. Peace.